and kings, this is Sharana Reeves, and you are listening to These Three Things Podcast, a podcast for women, where the conversation is about us, our relationships, and every area of our lives. This show is about unity, support, kindness, and keeping it 100% real. So we can rise up, move, we've got the victory, burn up smooth. Hey, hey, you are listening to These Three Things Podcast. I am Sharana Reeves, and I hope you all had an awesome 4th of July. I have to just come out the gate and say both of my kids were home for the 4th. So editing took a backseat to my family. We just spent family time. We beached it. We hung out. We ate good. We just enjoyed ourselves. And so... I just focused on that. And also, I knew that the next week I was going to run this episode of me and my son, Kendon, talking about mother and son relationships. So it was only fitting that I run the former episode of me and my daughter, Kamora, talking about mother and daughter relationships. You guys will be able to discern quickly from this episode that Kendon had a completely different experience than Kimora. Just the ins and outs and ups and downs of being a young black man in America in a divorced family where you don't live close to your father. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode. My son is extremely shy. So for me to get him to get on this podcast and speak from his heart and as authentically as he spoke, please appreciate it because this is not something that he does. But I think that he realized the value in him sharing his experience and for all of the mothers and fathers out here who are listening to hear what is happening in the lives of our young men out here in this country and what the family dynamics and how the family dynamics shapes our children and how important it really, really is. I did not get everything right. I will be the first to say that. But I also am at a place where I have done my work and I'm okay with sharing some of the lows and also obviously the highs of um, divorce, of raising two kids with a very um, high profile career a very demanding career and how it affects your kids and what that experience is like, the things that you may miss and the things that you may get absolutely right. Queens, I want to talk about it here on these three things podcast. I don't want for any of us to be left in the dark. And so many times when we're dealing and trying to manage all that we have on our plates, we forget that our kids are dealing with their own little set of things as well. So I hope this episode blesses you. I pray over every episode for all of my guests and all of my listeners who listen. Thanks for joining me again this week on These Three Things Podcast. And I'll see you back at the end of this episode with These Three Things. Hey, queens, kings, and good people. You are listening to These Three Things Podcast. I am Sharana Reeves, and I am with my son, Kendon Reeves. Kendon, welcome to These Three Things Podcast. Thank you for having me, man. You know, it's an honor just to be on here, you know, 
Well, thank you, sweetheart. It's an honor to have you here. I know it's not easy to get you to get out and talk. A lot of people <laughs> do not know that Kendon is very shy, especially when he doesn't know you. Once he's comfortable, he'll definitely speak a little more. But for the most part, Kendon's a pretty shy guy. We call him low-key Larry. So <laughs> <laughs> it's just nice to get you here to talk about, you know, some cool things and then probably a little some deep things and just, you know, share your story with growing up in uh, a household that went through a divorce a household that also moved around a lot, what it's like growing up and being a black man in America today and a young black man in America, some of the pitfalls that you guys deal with and that you face. So, you know, I'm really honored to get you here and, you know, just have this conversation. This conversation was highly requested after we did Kim's episode. This conversation between you and I were highly requested by a lot of people that I've known in my former profession that have sons who are not married, you know, or who have divorced that, you know, kind of wanted just some insight. So thank you for being here, my love. Happy to be here. Okay. So let's start it off, you know, from the beginning, what are you up to these days? Like what, what, what's going on with you in your world? Right now I'm just focusing on, you know, building my confidence in different areas and I'm just trying to work hard to make money, you know, and b put it in the business for myself. And the business is a clothing line that, you know, I dreamed of one day. College and basketball. I know at one time, you know, I know that you were in school and playing basketball. And I think when COVID happened, you pretty much decided just to take a break from school, get into the working world. I know you have your vision for your clothing brand and you're currently working on uh creating that and and funding that for yourself do you feel like you're done with college and basketball do you feel like that you've you've done all of that that you're going to do I don't love it like I used to love it basketball yes yeah it was at a one point where I really loved it and was doing everything for it but now I think it has come to an end yeah. In some spots, you know, I still love, you know, to go outside or go to the Y and shoot hoops with people, you know. But, yeah, I feel like it's came come has come to an end. Come to an end for you. Yeah. And what about college? Do you feel like that you can, do you feel like you're, you'd be solid as far as that's concerned without the college piece? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. I feel like if I have a good mentor that I can learn from, I don't feel like I would have to, I would need to, you know, pay all that money just to go to school yeah when I can just you know learn everything I need to learn from somebody that is already going through it and in the direction I want to go yeah yeah you and I have talked about this I think you know for me as a mom you know I've always wanted for you and your sister to go to college I, that's always been you know priority mm -hmm. for me and I've expressed that to you but I think that as I have grown as a mom and realizing that I don't own you and your sister. You know what I'm saying? And I don't own your future. And while I think that I would like to see you go to school, I've got to let you chart your own path with that. And I'm cool with it. You know, I know that you're a hard worker trying to make your vision come through. And I think that, you know, education as it stands right now, like it's a lot to be desired. You know, we're going to college and creating a lot of debt for ourselves and spending half of our lives trying to pay it off. Who are you studying in the clothing industry that would give you like some guidance as to how to maneuver and how to build your brand? 
Are there any people that you study or pay attention to? On Instagram, it's a guy named Kenan Williams mm-hmm. that um, I'm a part of. Uh, his little membership is $60, and he tells you how the pros and cons of starting a business and what to do, what not to do. Mm-hmm. It's a story where he talks about him. His mom was going through something, and he was at, I think he said Skechers, working for him. Mm-hmm. And his mom was about to die or something. I don't know if she was about to die, but she was going through a hard time, mm-hmm. and he wanted really to go out there and see her. And his uh, manager told him to go out there and sell some more shoes. Wow. When he when he asked if he could go see his mom, and he said from that point on he quit. He said he was gonna start on his own. He said he started for with three hundred dollars. Yeah. That's all he had. And he's a millionaire now. So. Yeah. So that's who you're following. That's who you're like getting advice from and mm-hmm. mentorship and do you feel like the information that he's given is good? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause he's done it from the ground up. Yes. Yeah. That's what's up. So let's move into you and you coming into this world. A lot of people don't know this, but I'm going to tell you guys a quick story. It may not be quick, but it is the background of my son coming into this world um, I met Kendon's father, my ex-husband, Kenley, when uh, we were both at Troy State University. And it was Troy State University back then. It is now Troy University in Troy, Alabama. And uh, Kendon's dad and I started seeing each other. Kendon was conceived. And I was an assistant coach at the time that Kendon uh, was conceived. And I was at a point in my career that each year I had been at that school, I was getting job offers every year to go to different schools. About two weeks after I found out I was pregnant, I was offered a very, very major job opportunity and um, had flown out and met with everyone and gone through the job interviewing process and Uh, got offered the job. It was an opportunity to work at a prestigious school with a prestigious head coach. I was going to come and be an assistant there and um, was super excited about the opportunity. When I took the job and flew out to where the job was, I wanted to make sure that I let the head coach know when I got there that I was pregnant because I wanted to be honest with her. I didn't want to start our relationship on a basis where I knew something that could be something that we'd have to deal with later that I didn't share with my boss. So I wanted to come in and off the gate, build the most authentic relationship that I could. So the first night that I arrived uh, at the location where the school was, I shared with my head coach that I was pregnant. And that night, it seemed that everything was okay. At least I went to sleep thinking that everything was okay. But let me backtrack for a second. Before I went to the location where the school was, I actually had gone to the abortion clinic to abort Kendon because I had this major job opportunity and I felt like that if I, you know, had a baby, I wouldn't be wanted. Back when I first started coaching, there was no black women who were married and had families or children. 
We were all single. None of us even had husbands, much less boyfriends. Like back when I first started in coaching, black women pretty much, we dedicated our lives to the sport. And our children were the children in the program. That's how it was back then. So I'm at the abortion clinic and two of my friends had taken me to the abortion clinic who had asked me the whole ride there to reconsider, to, you know, think about it a little more, take another day. And I was like, no, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Now, nothing inside of me wanted to abort Kendon. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But being the friends that they were, you know, they had tried to change my mind. To them, it appeared that my mind was made. And so they dropped me off. And while I was, you know, in the abortion clinic, paying my money and filling out the paperwork and doing all this stuff, I'm sitting in the abortion clinic waiting for my name to be called. Now, the whole time I'm sitting in that seat, I'm just like at the lowest point of my life. Like literally, I'm at the lowest point of my life because everything is in, everything in me is crying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You don't have to do this. Just forget it. If they don't want you at the job, just don't take it. Like, don't do this. And so I'm sitting there fighting back and forth with myself because you know, my career, it meant so much to me. And I wanted this opportunity to work with this person so badly. But at the same time, you know, I really loved the man who I had conceived Kendon with. And the thought of destroying something that we had created was just really, really hard for me to, to, to think that I was about to go and do that. So my name gets called. I'm walking into the operating room. And the moment that I walk into the operating room, a voice speaks to me as clear as my voice is coming through this microphone and says to me, why do you feel you have to make this decision? Why can't you believe that I will provide for you? And I just stopped in my tracks and I looked at the table and I looked up at the doctor and I shook my head no. And I said, no, I'm not going to do this today. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to do this. And the doctor looks at me and he motions for me to come to the table. And he was like, no, he said, you're making the right decision. Come on. And this black lady, I don't know who she was. I don't remember her name. And after she helped me out of that room, I didn't see her in that clinic anywhere else. Because I looked for her to go back and say thank you and could not find this woman. But when the doctor told me to come on that I was making the right decision, this black nurse jumps out of nowhere directly in front of me and the doctor. And she says, she looks me dead in my eyes and she says, no, she said she doesn't want to do it. Come on, sweetie. Let me help you find your clothes. And so she grabs me, takes me to my, where my clothes are. And she says, they're not going to give you all your money back but that's okay. I'm going to make sure that they give you most of your money back. She's like, I've been waiting for someone to change their mind all day. So at that moment, I had decided that I was going to trust in the Lord and in the voice that I heard that God would provide for me, A. And B, I had decided that regardless of whatever happened between this child and his father, because we were not married at the time, I was going to take care of this little person no matter in whatever way it took for me to do that. So my mind was made. So now my friends who had taken me to the clinic 
had gone to go grab a quick bite to eat because they just needed to talk and decompress from the decision that I had made because they really did not want me to do it. So when they come back, I'm sitting on the steps of the abortion clinic and I'm looking all sad and stuff because they have no idea that I did not abort my baby. So I'm looking all sad because I'm about to really surprise them. So we get in the car, we drive off and nobody says anything for a while. And all of a sudden, one of my friends says, are you okay? And I said, yeah, girl, I'm okay. I ain't abort my baby. I'm keeping this baby. I'm hungry. Y'all take me somewhere and get me something to eat now. We hungry. We got to eat. My friends put the car in park in Atlanta, Georgia, because this is where we were at the time. Put the, par- put the car in park in Atlanta, Georgia, in the middle of a busy intersection and just start doing a whole praise dance around the car. <laughs> we are out in the middle of the streets <laughs> of Atlanta. My friends are just thanking God that I did not do it. And we laughed about that and laughed about that. And I got in that car and I did not look back. Fast forward weeks later, I'm at the location where I'm about to start this new job. I'm now three and a half months pregnant. And I'm telling this person that I, you know, am pregnant. I'm hoping that it's going to be okay. But I've braced myself for the worst. Now, can you imagine being a woman having to tell your boss that you're pregnant and wonder if you're even going to have a job? Black women in coaching today have no idea what that must feel like. Because, you know, I look in the landscape of coaching today and I honestly, truly am so happy to see so many black women with families and children and, you know, being head coaches, being assistant coaches, you know, single women, being assistant coaches, raising children. You know, I only know of one other assistant who has recently had to leave a school because of the rules at that school and her being a single mom pregnant. But outside of that, black women have been able to just have a whole full life and still be in the profession of coaching. And that makes me happy because at the time that I was entering the game as a young coach, that was not afforded me. So I tell the head coach that I'm pregnant and that night, seemingly everything was okay. Later, as in three days later, we ended up having another conversation where I was basically asked to have an abortion and reconsider my pregnancy, I think is how, and I'm using air quotations, how the conversation went to reconsider my pregnancy because I was young and I would be able to have more children down the road. So then I shared with the person who was asking me this that I had already gone to the abortion clinic to abort my my baby and I couldn't do it. So it was considered, but I couldn't do it. So after more conversation, I go and I call, you know, at the time, my boyfriend, and I'm like, hey, this is going on. Uh, They're wanting me to reconsider the pregnancy. He was like, did you tell them that we've already done that and we decided that we're keeping the baby? And I was like, yes. And, you know, I think that these people really want me to reconsider. And he was like, well, just tell them that you're going to come here and we're going to talk more about it. So a ticket was bought for me to fly back to Alabama so that I could meet with my my baby's father, my baby daddy, and uh, talk about what we were going to do. So I get back to Alabama. He and I sit like for, it seemed like forever in silence. And then he kind of looked at me and he was like, well, hey, I was thinking about going home to Jacksonville. You want to roll? And I'm like, yeah, let's go. We get in the car and go to Jacksonville and visit his family because we've our minds have been made. Long story short, 
I end up going back to the institution. Well, we were in the middle of July recruiting at this point, and I meet uh, this particular coach out on the road, and I tell her that I didn't abort my child. And I explained to her that I'd already went, again, that I already went to go do that and I couldn't do it. And basically what happened the next day, I was stripped of everything the university had given me, stripped of every financial advice, financial meanings that I had. I'd never, I had never even received a paycheck from the job yet. So I was basically living off of the school credit cards and then just whatever little money that I had, which wasn't a lot because I wasn't really coming from a very high paying job at the time. So I was basically stripped of everything that I had and was left at a Chicago uh, restaurant with a rental car. Now, let me just tell y'all how God works. My sister, my oldest sister, lives about 40 minutes away from Chicago in a town called Michigan City, Indiana. I have a rental car. I have 90 cents to my name, and this was back in 1998, okay? I have 90 cents to my name and no credit cards. I have nothing because they've all been stripped from me. Even had to basically throw my clothing in the back of a trunk because the luggage that I had even been issued was taken from me at that time. I got in my car and I called my sister and I told her where I was and what was happening. I get in the car and I go through three tolls that were 30 cents each. I barely had enough money to get to my sister's house. And all I remember is getting to my sister's house and just collapsing. That is the backdrop of your life, Kendon. That is the backdrop. That is the beginning of what was happening in the womb when you were a baby. It was a lot going on surrounding your entrance into this world, your birth, you getting to this world. And instantly I knew that God must have something very major planned for you because it was a lot of forces mm -hmm. that were doing a lot of things to keep you from getting here. So when you hear that now at 22 years old, and I've shared it with you along the way, uh, and you've seen the person uh, that was the person who asked me to do it. You know, you've never talked mm -hmm. to this person or never met this person, but you've actually seen the person in real life. Yeah. Um, what does that make you, how does that make you feel? And what does that make you think to know that all of this was happening about you being born? It shows I have a blessing over my life, like you said. I mean, wow. Where do I even start, you know? From you losing your job, from... You know, from you walking off the abortion table, I mean, I'm just so happy that you didn't give up on me. You seen it through, and God has provided every step of the way, every single step. And I'm just so proud that you're my mom, even though... Even the bad, the good, if I had to do it over again, I will always pick you because you've been there for me my whole life, you know, through the good and bad. Well. And you've been my day one since day one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said I wasn't going to get emotional during that part, but it's always emotional to me because, you know, um, 
it's a story a few people know, but not a lot of people know, like just the sacrifices that, um, trying to just be a mom, trying to just have a family, uh, that I have made, you know, over the years, just the, the, the peaks and the valleys that basketball has taken me through Mm -hmm. trying to just have a career in that world. You know, a lot of people really don't know. So like I said, I'm always happy when I see it being how it should have been for me. You know, it was, you know, it would have been great to experience it on the level that some of these women get to experience it and just, you know, (laughs) feel free and have a family and do what you love, you know? And so kudos to evolving, you know, kudos to evolving and kudos to, you know, you stand with me. Do you know the first time I ever heard you laugh as a baby was when I was at a deposition because I ended up suing this institution for wrongful termination. And, um, I had to fly back and forth to this particular area for um, depositions. And I was breastfeeding at the time because I breastfed Kendon for over a year. I think we, you, I nursed you for over a year, like maybe 16 months or so. So you had to come with me. So I couldn't leave you and fly out to the depositions. I had to take you with me because I was nursing and I was conventional. I was not going to pump milk and leave it behind for you. <laughs> you were going to get the real thing. So, you know, I, I took you with me. And the first time I ever heard you laugh was in the attorney's office. I, you were strapped in your car seat and I had grabbed your little arms and pulled you with, you were all buckled in and I grabbed your arms and pulled you close to me to kiss me. But the fact that you were buckled in and you didn't lift up out of the seat, you thought was funny. And you just <laughs> laughed so hard. And I'm looking around and I'm like, did y'all hear that? He just laughed. He just laughed. It was like the deepest little giggle. And I'm in the enemy's territory. So obviously nobody was looking back and feeling very, you know, chummy <laughs> about the fact that my baby just laughed for the first time. But I'll never forget that because you had the most gut laugh as a little baby about that. <laughs> Somehow that just tickled you. But yeah, so we made it, you know. Yeah. 22 years later, here we are, and I can't even imagine Still my life. Going strong. Yeah. Still going strong, for real. I can't imagine my life without you, Kendon. You know, you made a woman out of me. You really did. You grew me up in a lot of ways. You know, and, and I think the kids can tend to do that to you, but you grew me up in a lot of ways. And everything about you were just the most perfect baby through all the flying back and forth to depositions and, um, all of the things that I was dealing with as far as the loss of my career at that time, you were just the perfect little baby. You would sit in hours and hours and hours of depositions and never cry a peep unless you were hungry. I'd nurse you and you'd go right back to sleep. You'd sit in that little seat and play by yourself while I was talking. Like you literally were everything that I needed at that time. And with every day, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do right by this little baby. Like, I want to do everything I can to make sure he has a good life. And so, you know, you've been my day one, too. So <laughs> <laughs> you've been my day one, too. So I wanted to say all of that really because I wanted to just get, like I said, I wanted for my listeners to get a backdrop mm-hmm. on just how you came into the world. Like, what what you getting here was like. And you know, I think about you just being a young black man in America today, you know, just your birth and trying to get here was a whole thing. And then you're a black man in America who has, 
you know, that has its own stuff to it too. Like yeah. having to be concerned about things that, you know, your white friends don't have to be concerned about. Now at 22 years old and being a young black male in America and all of the things that I've kind of witnessed you go through over the years, are you hopeful about the state of this country as a black man or where are you as, as, as a young black man? What are you, what are your thoughts about, you know, just the, this world and, and, and being a black young male? Well, I feel like it all starts with the root of the family or the mom and dad. I feel like it starts there. I feel like nowadays there's so many kids raising kids yeah. nowadays. So nobody knows any structure. No, Nobody has any discipline, you know. And it's so hard for a kid to teach a kid how to be a man, you know. Yeah. Because he doesn't know himself. And his dad didn't teach him, and his dad before that didn't teach him. So it's so hard, and I don't feel like a woman, in no offense, can teach a man how to be a man. It has to be from his dad because it's like little things that he might go through as far as a man that a woman can't teach. Yeah. And it can just be petty. It could be large. It's just different, different things. How do I deal with a woman that's doing this, that? How do I, if something, if this happens, how do I deal with that? If a guy does this, how do I do that? You know, mm -hmm. how can I tell if a dude's sincere or if he's not? Mm -hmm. It's just so many ways. Like, how do I get out of this? How do I fix this? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And you feel like that that comes from not having a male role model in your life to guide you. Mm -hmm. So this, everything that you just said is basically some of the trauma that young men in this country deal with because they don't have male role models in front of them that really can show them how to lead. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they now, as we, we only think that, you know, what we have between our legs, that that's what determines us being a man, how yeah. we can please a woman, but not, you know, putting all the other pieces behind everything else that a woman needs besides, you know, our penis, you know. Right. That's real. You are listening to These Three Things Podcast, Mother and Son Relationships, with my son, Kendon Reeves. We'll be right back. Do you need to get a handle on your stress? Need to get better control of your emotions? Join the 19,000 plus students who have taken Dr. Patricia Thompson's 21-day crash course in emotional intelligence. You'll learn practical techniques that will help you manage your emotions, improve your relationships, and get ahead in your career, all in the comfort of your own home. Learn more at her website, silverliningpsychology.com, on the self-help page. Again, that's silverliningpsychology.com. So about five years later, after being uh, terminated for being pregnant, um, I was able to get my career back as a wife and as a mother, as an assistant coach. I was full go-ahead, full speed ahead, working really hard, and opportunities started to present themselves to me where we were moving 
a lot. And in the process of us doing all that moving, it started to take a toll on me and your dad's marriage. And I know that that was hard on you and Kim. First, I want to talk about two things in that. I want to talk about the moving around piece and how that affected you. I want to hear your take and just your experience on the moving, you know, around as a young man growing up. Yeah, I just got tired of being a new kid on the block. I have to understand people because the way a person in Florida might move might be different from a person from Alabama. You know, you have to learn the lingo. You got to learn how people move. And they know you're an outsider, so it's hard to make friends, you know. Yeah, it felt like you were always coming into situations where friendships had been established. Yeah, and, and I'm you the were, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it was not like you could ever get that true, real friend mm-hmm. because they've already been friends before you came along. Yeah, yeah. What did you find it hard to make friends, Kendon? Because the truth of the matter is, is that. I feel like that I gave thought. I know that I gave thought to the fact that the moving around after a certain point had gotten harder for you guys. Mm -hmm. But as you guys have gotten older, we talk more about things now. And I think you guys are voicing like some of the things that you've gone through, which is part of the reason why I'm having you guys on episodes, because I think it's so important for families to be be in the moment of everything that's happening in your lives because your kids are experiencing it too. And a lot of times we just assume that you're going to be okay, that, you know, because we're going to put you in a nice home and you're going to be able to have nice things, that it's going to fix all of the other things. And I don't think that I ever really gave thought so much to you guys always being, you know, the new kids because you always made friends, but I don't think I understood the depths of the process that it took each time for y'all to do that, because you're right. You know, we lived in New York. We lived in Florida. We lived in West Virginia. You know, Mm -hmm. all three of those places, people move it completely different. And you guys were having to figure that out with each move. And so my question to you is, was it hard to get yourself up to make friends. Did you ever get to a point where you were just like, I'm not, I don't even care if I make friends. I don't even know how long I'm going to be here. Or was it always important to you to have friendships wherever you were and try to cultivate those as much as you could? I'm going to say yes and no. When we first started moving and stuff, it was more important for me to make friends because I just didn't want to, you know, feel alone. Right. And out of that, I ended up making bad friendships with people I shouldn't be friends with just because I want to have friends, you know? Yeah. They might, you know, talk about me behind my back or something like that or do some stuff that I don't necessarily agree with. Mm -hmm. But, hey, I'm just trying to make friends and stuff like that. So I end up picking the wrong friends that now looking back don't really care for it, for real. I think that as far as Kim was concerned, your sister, I knew more what to tell her. You know, I knew more of what she needed to pay attention to as a girl. Mm-hmm. Once you and once you, you know, me and your dad split up, there were a lot of things about the dynamics of male relationships that I didn't know to tell you. I didn't know to tell you to pay attention to this and pay attention to that. So I don't know if I was as engaged uh peer pressure wise with you as I was with your sister. I think I just assumed 
like most women with sons assume uh, in some part, especially because you were always in sports, you were always playing basketball. So most of the time you were around basketball kids. And a lot of mothers tend to think that, you know, oh, well, if they're with other kids that are playing sports, for the most part, they're probably okay. You know, they're probably cool kids or whatever. How bad was the peer pressure for you coming up? Mm, Peer pressure was mostly for getting girls. Mm. That's what our peer pressure was. It's about who's the who's the biggest alpha, who can get the most girls. And me, I was from moving all the time. I was just I'm more I was more an introvert. So you said peer pressure was mostly about for boys getting girls, and by getting girls, do you mean like having sex with girls? Yeah. And how soon do you feel like that started? The whole peer pressure about the getting girls thing. High school. Freshman. Okay, so it did. So it wasn't middle school, or I mean, middle school. Yeah, you can. It can be in middle school too, but mostly high school. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure now middle school too. Uh huh. So what is it like for? Because because you, you mentioned being the introverted kid because you've moved a lot and you don't really know a lot of these girls at the school like some of the people who have been at that school already. So you're probably not out here actively pursuing girls on that degree like your friends are. Yeah. Was there was were there comments being made to you about the fact that, you know, hey, Kendon, why don't you have a girl or why aren't you, you know, getting girls or Kendon, are you getting girls? Was there peer pressure coming at you like that? I won't say like that. I'll just say they just make jokes about it. Like, oh, you're not getting girls or you ugly or no girls want you or. And then sometimes it wouldn't even be like that. You could just you just feel it in yourself when you not when you can see all your friends getting girls and you don't get anything. Mm. So it's personal peer pressure too. Yeah, it's yeah. personal. Like, dang, I can't get nobody. Nobody wants me. So now it makes you feel bad and you have less confidence in yourself about it. So what can the parents do to help y'all process that in high school so that you're not out here becoming sexually active before you're ready to be sexually active? Even though I understand and I'm full aware that it's very common that your friends are having sex at 15 and 16 years old. But let's just say you ain't, you're not there yet. You know what I'm saying? You're not comfortable to be going there yet. What can parents do to help their children process that? Is there a conversation that we need to be having with you about it or what? I feel like because some kids might not tell their parents Mm -hmm. what's really going on. So to me, I feel like it's a part of growing up Mm -hmm. where, you know, having to have thick skin, having to be okay with yourself, Mm -hmm. having to agree with your flaws you know, deal with them and be okay. I feel like that's a part of growing up. I feel like high school is where really where you start to find yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And your own personal strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess for us as parents, the most that we can do is encourage you to do what? Be comfortable with yourself, trust yourself, do what feels right to you when it's the right time. Yeah. And like you always told me, my time will come. Back then, I didn't feel confident. I didn't. I didn't feel good about myself, mm-hmm. and you know, I was a little chubby back then. I grew out of it, you know, and now I feel more confident in myself. I can get girls if I want to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we know. <laughs> but you know, back then I didn't. You know, and the girls that I see now, I don't even check for them anymore. 
right. that I used to back then, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like everybody's time will come. So out of all the places that we live, let's talk about that for a second, because what a lot of people don't know is that Kendon went to prep school for two years. I removed Kendon out of high school when he was, we lived in West Virginia and he was put into a prep school in Winton, Massachusetts, which really is, we call it the North Pole because literally it's <laughs> freezing cold. Like mm-hmm. he was put in a, in a, I put him in a, a prep school there a, because of all the moving around that we had done academically, it had it had taken its toll on you. And I knew, as your dad knew, you were an extremely smart kid as a young child. But all of the moving uh, and the inconsistencies and the levels of education at the places that we were moving to, uh, it affected you differently than it did your sister. And I wanted for you to really grab hold of all of the spots that you had missed and realize how smart you were. And can you tell the story of how, when you first got to Winchenden, you, um, you had no idea what you were doing in math. And by the end of the school year, you were tutoring in math. Can you tell like that story that you told me when you called me one day and was telling me about what was going on? Well, I'm going to even take it back even farther. Me and West Virginia before I even moved, you know, finally feeling like I had a, a solid friendship with people. I, when I first came to West Virginia and I started playing basketball, those uh, my teammates made me feel like a like a brother, like it was a brotherhood, you know, and I never wanted to leave that. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt like it was sincere friendship. I never felt like an outsider there. We had a um, sit-down talk about me going to Winchester all the way in Massachusetts, and I'm telling mom, like, I don't really want to go. I finally found some people, you know, I can really call friends. You know, I don't really want to move again. This is our 600th time moving. <laughs> <laughs> but she was like, no, I believe that you're smarter than what you're putting out. I feel like it would be a good idea. It's finally you're going to Massachusetts. So me already looking at it, I don't, I don't even – I'm not even liking it already, just off the fact, like, I'm leaving my friends that I really, you know, really, truly call friends. But we get to Massachusetts, and, man, I believe it was cold, wasn't it, Mom? It was cold. You went in October. Super cold. And back then, when I first got there, it was a big campus. Now, looking back, it was small, but when I first got there, I didn't know how I was going to get to class, where my class was. It was like starting over as a freshman. Yeah, it was like a mini college, really. So. That was one of the hardest things I ever had to do, was drive off and leave you at that prep school, knowing that I wasn't going to see you again until Christmas. And you being, at the time, 16 years old, because you went to Winchester when you were 16. Were you mad at me for putting you in Winchester? Be honest. Uh, look back then, yes, but looking at it now, no, because it showed me how smart I really am. It was Winchester was like, no, you gonna get this. You don't have no choice. <laughs> like, you can't. Uh, it's not done. Uh, F. It was no. It was no like public school. Like I can, you know, put it in later. You know. Get a little extra, little credit off, but I can still get it in. If it's not in by 
12 p.m. It's over with. Winston's discipline, it made me, you know, have to submit to it. Mm-hmm. And be like, okay, I can't, I can't get away with this here. Mm-hmm. I have to learn it. I had no choice. And and it wasn't nothing else to do in Washington either. We didn't have no video games, no TVs in there. It was just a computer. That's all you had. And I needed that. I needed not to have any distractions, no video games, no nothing, just me. And, you know, and it was like being at Washington, it was like a competition of who could be the smartest. When you was not the smartest, it was like, oh, they looked at you like beneath, like below. And I never wanted to feel like that. So I worked hard when I was in math class. I was mad when, you know, kids used to uh, show me how to do a problem because it's like, I should be showing y'all. So I worked hard, extra hard at night. While everybody sleep, I'm still on the computer, you know, studying and studying. And finally... You know, after a couple months, I was teaching people in the class. <laughs> <laughs> and it showed me, like, wow, if I just, you know, keep going hard and grinding and studying, I can be really smart. So, you know, and at uh, West Virginia, I was just skating by, you know, doing this, doing that. I, re- I rarely did my homework. I would do it um, at school. You know, when I had some time, but at, at Winchester, they was like, "No, nah, we're gonna get it about you. We're gonna make sure you know this stuff." And I had no choice. I can't even begin to tell you how much relief that gives me to hear you say because. At the time that I was taking you away from your friends, which I knew was really hard, and I knew that was your crew, and I wasn't oblivious to the fact that you didn't have a crew before that. Like, we had moved a lot. This was, like, your first official crew, and you guys hung tight. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all were tight, you know, and they were all really great kids, you know, and their families welcomed you into their homes, yeah. and they loved on you, Kendon. Like a little brother. Yeah, <laughs> and they saw you for who you were, yeah. you know. I didn't, have to, I didn't have to fake nothing. I could just be myself, and I really respected them for that. Yeah, and I saw that. But at the same time, too, I knew that you were getting older, and I knew that because you're such an awesome kid, teachers and stuff let you slip. You're tall, you're handsome, mm-hmm. you're you're easygoing, you're funny, <laughs> you know. Teachers were just letting you slide yeah. because they liked you. But I knew that you were way smarter than what you were giving. And the choice to take you out of your friend circle when you really hadn't had friends and put you in a private school thou- hundreds of mm-hmm. miles away from home in the middle of nowhere with no video games, no television, just basketball and school, it literally almost gave me a nervous breakdown. But more than anything, I wanted for you to know what you had inside of you. And I thought to myself, the day that I dropped you off and I, you know, got you, helped you get your room and stuff set up, and I left to go back to Boston to get on the plane to come back to West Virginia, I literally thought to myself, either he's going to look back on this and know my heart or he's going to never forgive me for this. And I literally 
cried the whole way home because I was wanting the best for you, mm. but I understood the sacrifice that you were going to have to make to get what I knew was in you. Mm-hmm. And it made me so happy that day that you called me and told me that because <laughs> you first called me, you was like, Mom, I don't have any business here. I don't know what they're doing in this math class. Yeah. And then it went to you were tutoring the freaking class. Like, how did you get, I mean, just from you realizing that you could do it, Kendon, is that how you, you just was like, okay, I'm capable of this. Let me stop playing and show these people that I'm smart too. Yeah, I will, because everybody there was smart off rip. So already coming in, they make me feel like I was dumb. I didn't want that to be on top of my head, a dumb black kid, dumb, tall, black athlete. Yeah. So, you know, I took that to the head, and that's when I started studying hard. No, I'm going to study. If I got to study all day. I go to tutoring after school. I'm going to do extra stuff, give me extra homework. But I'm not going to feel like, y'all not going to make me feel like I'm dumb. So I just started going harder. It just started going harder for it. Yeah. And do you think the fact that you didn't have the video games and you were kind of in a more disciplined, structured situation was good for you at that time? Yes. It was? Yes. And so what would you say to parents who, because I took a lot of flack for sending you to that prep school. And let me just say, this prep school is one of the most expensive prep schools in Massachusetts. I think you were, you know, the the uh, fee to go there was upwards of $68,000 a year to go to that prep school. And you were on, you were scholarshiped every dime, but $1,000 a month is what I paid for you to go there. And I know it was a big time school because y'all had a helicopter landing pad on your campus mm-hmm. for parents who were wealthy that was flying in for the weekends on their helicopters <laughs> yeah. to see their kids. So um, I'm glad that it, that it, that it, you realized what was in you because that's what I wanted for you to see so that nobody else could make you feel small or also, too, that you wouldn't diminish your own self and have doubts about your own level of uh, knowledge and wisdom and smarts. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So I guess my question to you is, for parents who are raising sons and you see your son underachieving, you see him not doing everything that he can do to be at his best, what would you recommend that they do? Because that was the thing that I knew to do. Your dad and I had split up. I knew there were things that you needed as a man that I couldn't give you. I knew that there were levels of discipline that you needed academically that I couldn't oversee because I'm traveling all the time and I'm working all the time. And it was just so many demands that we all needed that I felt like the best thing for me to do was to put you in an environment where that you, you were going to be in a disciplined, structured environment that was going to force you to focus in ways that would ultimately help you later. What would you tell a, a parent who has a kid that was in the same situation as you? But I feel like uh, parents should give kids no leeway out. And I feel like parents should go directly to the teachers. Not to the kids, because the kids might flim-flam. 
you, you know, and give you and throw you off and make you seem like everything's good. And then when you see the report card, it might have a D or a C on it. But I feel like all parents should go to their teachers, you know, during parent-teacher conference and see where's my son's flaws are at. You know, show me show me what he's doing good in and show me what he's doing bad in. Because you don't always want to feel like your kid's not being good enough. Right. Praise him on the stuff that he's doing good, you know, as well as you showing him, as well as you uh, demanding better in the stuff that he's doing bad in. So he never feels like he's just mom is always a mom or dad just always going down on me or something like that so he doesn't fold you know yeah you know bring him up because he knows that he can you know he can he can come to that level that you need him to come to yeah where he can make b's and you know a's can i say can i jump in and just say for all of the mothers who are listening to this who are raising sons be it by divorce or by single parent I want to say that this is an area where I made a mistake because after their dad and I split up, I felt like I then needed to become mom and dad. And while as a woman, I knew Kim was looking at me and knowing how to emulate and model, I could model in front of her and she could watch me as a woman, you know, struggle and bounce back, you know, go hard on my job, watch my work ethic you know, see me as a woman and take things from me. And also, too, you know, having a lot of conversations with her. I felt like for you, I needed to just be hard all the time because I had to take up, you know, that male role. And there were times where I wasn't praising you for the good. I was only noticing the things that might get you in trouble, might get you killed by the police, might, you know, mess your life up. And I think looking back now, and I've apologized to you about that mm-hmm. since you've been older, uh, that you, what you really needed from me was to still like just love you and not, uh, you know, of course, um, call out the bad things that you're doing, yeah. but do more of the of the praising you for the things that you were doing right. Yeah, yeah. and in that sense of I don't, you can't baby a kid, but also you can't break down his confidence too by always preaching the bad that he's doing, you know. It's got to be a mixture of both. Like, oh, yeah, you're doing good in this, but you can also do a little bit better in this, for instance. Or you're doing really good. And when he's doing good with everything, you know, praise him for that, you know. Keep yeah. up the good work. But And if he's doing bad, then you got to discipline him, you know. But I feel like it's got to be a mixture of both. Hey, queens, kings, and good people. I try so hard to just do one episode, but there was just so much for me and my son, Kendon, to talk about. We haven't even gotten to his dad and I breaking up, how that affected him as a young man, mentally, emotionally, physically. We haven't gotten to the part where we talk about the pitfalls that our young men are faced with daily. There's still so much left to this conversation. I will share the rest of it with you next week and three things to take away from this episode with my son, Kendon Reeves. Forgive me for the part two, but trust me, you'll want to tune in and hear the rest of what this young king has to say. I'm so proud of him. He's so super shy. So for me to get this time with him and to get him to speak so freely 
means the world to me. I hope that you're enjoying it too. And I hope you'll tune in next Tuesday for part two of mother and son relationships. I'll see you next week. If you like what you've been hearing today, I encourage you to go to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave a review and tell me what you loved about this episode.